This is Merki and Bell with In Between Stations Radio. This is Merki and Bell with In Between Stations Radio. Good in the middle of the night greetings. <laughs> I don't know, it's about 3 a.m. in the morning here in Arizona, USA, northern Arizona. And uh, uh, all these different time zones in the other parts of the world are broadcasting in shortwave radio, and so people get us at different times uh, all over the world. So that's why I like to always say, uh, in between stations, uh, it depends on where you're at, uh, what you're doing. Is it day? Is it night? Is it in between those two things? Are you eating graham crackers in your bed and reading a, a scary book or some boring book? Or are you texting on your cell phone or reading some text? Uh, I don't know about texting. I think we're all getting sick of it. Um, you know... <laughs> I had a I had a friend over and we were talk we talked for a couple hours and I said to him at the end of you know, I don't remember what we talked about something interesting maybe South America he had been to uh, South he's been to South America several times we we're talking about one of his trips you know, it was interesting because he mostly did it on foot and riding buses and uh, for I think a couple of months and then he'd make a living uh, fixing people's cars I guess that's what got him through I don't remember. Anyway, and at the end of the, before he left, I said, can you imagine if, if all this, the, you know, us talking back and forth would have been text? And that, that, that really makes bare the situation of just how ridiculous text can get. Um, and especially, and I have done, if it goes on for hours. And what you can do when you're in person with that, with that individual, with individuals, when you're talking. I always picture, like, I used to, you know, drive to work sometimes early in the morning. I run to work now as well. But when I would drive, I'd go past the bus stop, and you'd see some people waiting there for the bus to go to work. Sometimes it's pretty early in the morning, 6 o'clock, even 7 o'clock. Um, but you could see them talking there. And I always thought it would be funny that if you could see uh, little um, uh, caption boxes above them, you know, and highlighted text as the text goes back and forth <laughs> as you drive by. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then if, if you could slow down and stop and, and, and park your car and drive and go walk for the bus stop, and nobody's talking, it's all mute, and you have to read the captions above their head. And if you get engaged in a conversation with somebody, instead of actually talking, you have to read the captions above their head, and they have to read the captions above your head. How do you type? I don't know. <laughs> it's up to you, right? Um... Well, trains are coming through. Uh, sometimes you can hear them on the broadcast. Sometimes you can't. I can hear them really good no matter what I do in our radio station. Uh, and I and Murky have come up with all kinds of ideas. We just decided to let it run. Uh, the Cuckoo Clock, our third member of, of the in-between stations uh, cast, or whatever we are, we just keep it ticking and keep the trains rolling by. <laughs> Murky's not here today. She's out in the desert. 
uh, on a little trip with a couple of her friends. I hope she's having fun. I don't know if she took her shortwave radio. She has a new one. We can talk about that on another uh, broadcast where she can actually pick up our little program a lot of times. It's kind of cool. It's got a really good uh, um, antenna, and so she's not too far away from the station. She can she can pick up these broadcasts. So and then she's not far away. I think 40 miles. So I'm hoping maybe she can pick up the broadcast. So hello, Murky. I hope you're having fun. Uh, are you getting drunk? <laughs> no. Okay. So um, where's this? Where's this show going to go this morning? Well, I don't know. i got to have a drink of coffee first. You know, I have my one cup of coffee. I am, I've, I've narrowed it down to keeping it one cup of coffee lately. So um, it's, a, it's mildly stimulating. I like it, the taste of it. Um, is it an addiction? I don't think so. I can go without it. It gives me kind of a headache. but um, I can take it or leave it, but I, I, I do like to taste. And you know, as I said before, we all have addictions, uh, whatever it is, television, um, too much candy, uh, too much sex. Uh, I, I, I don't know. Uh, there's just all these addictions. It just depends on how you define them, what's good for you and what's bad for you, maybe your religion, or maybe your itinerary uh, forbids you from from uh, having some things. Uh, maybe that's good for your health. Maybe it's just important to your religion. I, I don't know. When you make forbiddens, uh, obviously you're you're up against, um, you know, the the gravity of wanting to do something, but you're not supposed to. And, uh, and I can, you know, I've talked about this before with drugs and other things. Maybe making drugs legal wouldn't be such a problem. I mean, you're going to learn, and this kind of this broadcast is going to be a little bit about drugs, in parenthesis plants, um, you're going to learn the hard way if it's good for you or bad for you. And making something illegal just creates a black market. That's really apparent with prohibition. I mean, the mob made billions of dollars when alcohol was uh, illegal. And it was, you know, a bottle of alcohol could be worth a lot of money. And I think we create these markets and you build a wall and you, you know, a lot of the stuff from Mexico comes into the United States. A lot of stuff from uh, Colombia, you know, cocaine, it gets the gateways are in the United States where we're the consumers and when it's illegal it makes it uh, people are willing to charge uh, willing to pay extravagant amounts for something that uh, is illegal so I don't know uh, thoughts about that we could go on and on do a number of broadcasts on that and I have talked about that before making things legal or not illegal it's a good or bad I'm, I'm sure there's pros and cons on both sides where am I at um, I don't know. But I think we should make it legal just because it's just so much, so many awful things happening. Like I said, when something's forbidden, you know, I used to have this friend. <laughs> I don't know. He, he was what we, what we termed a, a good Christian, but he had this weird habit that he would go to sleep. Him and his girlfriend would sleep in bed naked, but they wouldn't have sex. And he said it got increasingly more and more difficult because it was kind of, you know, we, you, you're not supposed to have sex until you're married. But it's okay to sleep together and do everything else but that. And so he said it just got harder and harder to sort of um, to resist that whole um, temptation. And so I think when you have a forbidden sometimes, it just, it just by by default uh, it's going to be a temptation you're going to think about it because it's forbidden to do this and I see you know I, I see the 
I see there's a need for laws, and I see there's a need for limitations and um, forbiddens, or what do we call them in anthropology, or what we used to call them, uh, taboos. You know, taboos are these things, that's the very fringes of your society or culture. This, you know, these, there's a reason that there's a forbidden there, because if you go beyond that, you know, you can have addictions with alcohol, and you can have addictions with things, and, and, and some things are really harmful to you, and other people have tried them and said, hey, <clears throat> this doesn't work, and, and if you do it, um, it could be a bad situation. So, you know, there's trial and error, and we know some things are not good for you, and it's not good to, to run a stop sign if uh, somebody else runs a stop sign, or if somebody's sitting idling in their car, and you go through the stoplight and the stop sign, you run into your car, it's going to be a wreck, and somebody could get hurt or killed. So, I mean, there's kind of reasons for, for laws, of course, and I, and I, and I see that, but sometimes like I always say, we go to the extremes in either direction, and it can be not, not the best thing. I, I remember in high school, I used to have this thing where, if, if you know, it's one or two in the morning. I don't remember what my job was then. I drive through this little town of Brigham City. I lived in uh, an outlying farming community called Corinne, this little town. So I drive through Brigham City, the 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 main drag street. I can't even remember, I can't even remember what it's called. It's a beautiful little street in Brigham City, lined with all these sycamore trees that the early Mormons planted along the, the street for shade. It's kind of beautiful. But you know, a stoplight, the stoplight turns red and there's no traffic. And, and you're just sitting there idling in your car, or as the case, my stepdad's car. I didn't own a car in high school. I don't think I had my first car until four or five years later, my own car. So, you know, I'm in my stepdad's car and it's idling at the stoplight. And, and there's no cars, there's no traffic. So do you stay at the stoplight or do you do you just kind of like uh, look both directions and uh, push the gas and go through the light? Well, I started doing that more. Um, and um, yeah, I got a ticket one night, finally. Uh, the policeman, a person I knew, I mean, everybody knew the cops in town, mostly back then. Uh, I think it was actually, I, went, I, w I played football with his, no, I wrestled with his son on the wrestling team. And, and uh, he knew me. He's like, hey, Dave, you just, uh, how's it going? I'm like, okay. He said, What'd you just do back there? Because, you know, he'd pull me over, turn the light on. I said, I ran a stoplight. He said, why? And <laughs> I didn't deny it, but I told him, I said, you know, there's nobody around. Um, I just, I went. He said, yeah, I seen you. He said, because he was pulled off the side of the road under one of the sycamore trees. You know, I couldn't see him off one of the side streets. And he watched me go by. And, 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 and so I told him, I said, you know, there's nobody there. I looked both ways and I went. And you know, he didn't give me a ticket. He kind of laughed. He said, yeah. He said, I understand that. And then he kind of gave me this little lecture on why we have laws and why they're in place, you know, like a good policeman should. And uh, and then he said, you know, sometimes I understand the reasons for um, doing stuff like that. He said, but the laws are set in place for the safety of the, of, of the public. And so we should, you know, next time I see a rental light, whether it's one or whether it's two in the morning or, you know, in the afternoon, especially in the afternoon, I'm going to give you a ticket. So he said, I'm just giving you a warning. So that, so he did that. Um, and it goes back to the war I was in. I broke uh, a lot of rules. Uh, I was in a big unit and we did, some of us did little enclaves of friends and fellow soldiers did things we shouldn't do. But you know what? I think that might be, that might be one of the reasons I survived uh, is I didn't follow all the rules. And I think, I think they're there to help you, but they can they can get to be uh, 
they can get to be too rigorous and they can get to be too heavy and they can get to be uh, dangerous. So uh, extremes in either direction, no rules or too many rules. And, you, and I think you have to sort of find a balance. And, and that's, that's part of becoming an adult. That's part of growing up is how, how's, how's this going to work? And I've been in, you know, wilderness and lots of solos. And I have rules laid down out there in the desert by myself. I've been out there a couple of days. I have so much water. I have so much food. Uh, and what do I do if, if I get hurt? What do I do if it's too hot? Um, and sometimes you have to break certain rules if you're going to survive without going into detail. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's something to think about. I'm, uh, I'm holding in my hand a copy of Huxley's... Um, the Doors of Perception. I think this is written after 1953. He'd already uh, written uh, Brave New World in the early 30s. I want to say 1931, 1932. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the major things of, with, with Brave New World. It takes place in New York. Uh, New York. It takes place in New Mexico, a lot of it, with the Pueblos, which, you know, where I spend a lot of my time is with the, with the Pueblo people, especially the Zuni and Hopi. And it looks at this uh, future world where technology is kind of a demon. And really what it is, it's about the state controls the technology. It controls the, the science. And I, I always say, you know, it isn't science is not good or bad. It's just how it's controlled and used. Is the scientist corrupt? Is the scientist going to do what the state tells him? And uh, when this new movie Oppenheimer comes out here in about uh, a week or so, um, and there's there's some morality there too. Why why build this bomb? And I think I think uh, Oppenheimer had questions, but they're, they're, they felt this over. Uh, they felt this huge burden they had to create. I mean, the Nazis were experimenting with nuclear fission fusion. I always get the two mixed up. <laughs> you know, when I read, I read about them over and over again. I I, I think uh, fission and fusion are are kind of this from the same process. Um, uh, both are nuclear reactions that produce a tremendous amount of energy, but if I remember right, fusion produces a lot more and often can be uncontrolled. So the hydrogen bomb, I think, was a product of fusion, and the atomic bomb was a product of fission. So fusion is a, a bit more powerful and, and, and chaotic, if I remember right. I, I think uh, we use fission in all our modern uh, nuclear weapons um, all in parenthesis because the Russians have the most powerful nuclear weapon in the world the Tsar bomb and I'm not sure if that works on fission or fusion but and and the rumor is they have something even more powerful than the Tsar bomb um, this war going on in Ukraine is really dangerous stuff uh, and we're in a situation that might even be more volatile than it was in the 60s and 70s um, because the, the power of the nuclear weapons we have now, and you can mount them on, on hypersonic missiles, I think they can move five to six miles a second. Um, we're, we're in a really terrifying, horrifying situation. I'm feeling the movie, the new movie Oppenheimer, when it comes out, is going to point that out, I think. I don't know. People are saying it's a horror movie, and I, I think maybe that's, that's why. So, um, yeah, the, 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 little, the little boy bomb unfortunately dropped in Japan, which is something I can go, I'll talk about some other time. Uh, I don't, uh, I have real problems with the two bombs that were dropped in 
in Japan, but you know, it's hindsight, and hindsight's you know always easier to deal with when you're looking back and then being critical. I, I, back in that time period, 1945, and maybe the movie will point that out, we've seen the world differently, and we've seen it was something we had to do, especially in light of what the Nazis were doing. And I don't know, I, it, uh, and I knew a lot of people, including my, both my grandfathers, especially my dad's, uh, my grandpa, uh, and he, he, he was a really peaceful person, but he said, you know, Dave, we had to do that. We didn't want to do it, it had to be something that we did. So he felt, you know, he's from that generation that felt it was something we needed to do. And I think that, that was kind of Oppenheimer's thing. You know, again, we're breaking rules and laws. What's the morality of killing 100,000 people instantaneously, like we did in, 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 in Nakasaki and Hiroshima? I don't know the exact numbers. It was horrifying. There's just no way to get around that. It was absolutely horrifying. We have we have uh, documentation, uh, eyewitness accounts of what it was like after the bomb was dropped in Japan. Oh, my God. <clears throat> having having uh, been in a war, I got a rude awakening to what that sort of thing can mean. Where they used uh, nuclear, where they used uh, uranium rounds to to uh, to burn people alive, to disintegrate their bodies. We did things that were just so, you know, people were talking about taking Putin to uh, a world court and. Uh, for world crimes against humanity, I think we should think about the Bush administration. Now we look back at the Iraqi war and we realize it was—it just didn't. It should never happen. Though thousands, hundred, you know, I don't. Possibly, over a million people died in those in those wars. Uh, Middle Eastern people, a lot of them are innocent that never needed to die for oil. So I, you know, I don't. I don't want to go into this whole thing because I have in a lot of other episodes. Um, I, I just, I have a different view of things after having been to a war and i think we need to avoid wars at all costs i'm sorry unless we absolutely have to do it i don't think we should be sending um young men to die for something that is not needed and i think you know we, do we and uh, cluster bombs here i go again i'm sorry what do you know what cluster bombs do that, that's considered by, by many people to be crimes against humanity. These are awful weapons. And having been a soldier, is it, does the Russian soldier have any choice to be on the side he's on? Uh, and and if, if, if the Ukrainian people use the American cluster bombs, what's, uh, what's the Russians going to use? And is it going to put them up against the wall where they're going to have to finally use the big, the big one? And we just don't have anything that compares that. In fact, a lot of our nuclear weapons are obsolete. They don't work that. We don't know. Um, so, I, you know, we're... Yeah, so let's let's move away <laughs> away from that. But, you know, this is what Orwell and this is what um, uh, Huxley look at in their, in their two dystopian novels about the, the future and what it could become when it's controlled by governments, when it's controlled by corruption, when it's controlled by editing, when it's controlled by corporations, when it's controlled by a small percentage of people that are warped, that are owned by, by money, that are owned by power. Uh, that's not the America I was raised in. And I'm sorry I'm not as patriotic as a lot of other people are, but I went to a war. When I see people with the big flags in the back of their truck, and you know, I, I can understand it because I used to do that. Um, I want to say to them, go to war, go, go, have that experience, and, and let's see how how you feel about that when you get home. 
You know, I think we do things naively, and patriotism is one of those things. You know, the Iranians have patriotism, you know, every country, the Mexican, every country, the Peruvian people, we all have their patriotism, and at some extent it gets warped. Uh, and that's how you get soldiers to fight, as uh, um, Henry David Thoreau and uh, uh, Civil Disobedience, Powder Monkeys. That's all soldiers are a lot of times in wars like that, powder monkeys. Or we have something like the Civil War. Both sides of my family were involved in the Civil War. And there's horrible things that went on, especially on my dad's side of the family. Um, it just, it, it just it was awful. And there's eyewitness accounts and diaries written about about that experience of the Civil War. Wars are not, are not to be glorified. I'm sorry, I don't see anything to be glorified about a war. Even the War of Independence bothers me. And uh, light of tribes, I I, I got to stop. I just, <laughs> that's not what this episode is about today. And you know, I have other episodes, and I've tried to to move away from this fact. But folks, we're in a really bad situation right now. Any day, any hour, someone could push that button, and they may not be stable. They may not be. They may do it for all the wrong reasons. And when we're sending arms to to escalate a situation just like we were in Vietnam. You know, we weren't involved in Vietnam, in Vietnam in combat at first. We just sent arms and money. And it just became this huge catastrophe where we finally had to send soldiers over. Like, you know, we just got out of Afghanistan, for God's sakes, all that. And I have friends that are, are so messed up in the head that were over there. One of them is my nephew. <clears throat> who will never be the same since he got back from Afghanistan. And why? Why did we do that? And you look into that war, and, and Russia was over in Afghanistan for, what, 20 years? What is wrong with these two world powers? Why do we always have to do this? Why do innocent people always have to suffer? And are the agendas really legitimate anymore? Or, or, or as, a, as a species, as a people, can we move beyond that? And I think that's why Huxley, and I think that's why Orwell wrote these two unequaled, I think, novels of, of the future. And there's other newer things that's come into light, too, with the technologies of uh, computers and artificial intelligence getting involved. And uh, it's just, it's just, uh, it's a fucking mess. Sorry. Oceania's in a constant state of war. Uh, in, in, uh, in Brave New World, it's just this total deception of people. There's classes of people, and there's people outside of the system, uh, indigenous people, natives uh, uh, that don't fit in because they're they're born. You know, I think the main character is born naturally uh, through. Uh, you know, he, he's he's not born in the test tube. So anyway, <laughs> we're going to talk more about the through the doors of perception, which came after Brave New World. And it's a, it's a really interesting book, and I want to talk a little bit about uh, my own personal experiences with hallucinogenics. I want to talk about, uh, as I do, about visions and dreams, uh, something I've been involved with since I've been a little boy and not really understanding why I have those. And then being connected to an indigenous tribes where that's very common. Uh, visions and dreams and hallucinogenic experiences, uh, Otherworldly experiences are very common, and that was sort of something the Spanish and the colonial people attacked with their with their control methodologies, uh, supposed Christianity practice. They they wanted to control these what they termed satanic visions, um, and they 
When you're going to institute a new type of government and control over resources and people, you want to get rid of the religion. You want to get rid of the things that enable people to think freely. And to and so that was something that had to be removed, was visions and dreams and things of that nature, at least in terms of this new uh, group, these new groups of people coming from the old, supposed old world to, to the new world and, and taking over the land, taking over the tribes, taking over the resources and controlling them and using uh, Christianity as an excuse, I think. Uh, maybe not so much really Christianity, but an excuse to control and kill millions of people if they didn't uh, submit themselves to what you deemed as the, as the right thing to do. All right, let's uh, let's uh, go to a song so we can move on to the uh, the next part of our uh, our broadcast here. I'm, I'm kind of half hoping that Murky will drop in here, but I don't think she will. She's always <laughs> she always keeps me from going off the deep end. Uh, bless her, even though she's a little crazy and off the deep end herself. <laughs> All right, let's go to a song, and then we're gonna come back and, and move into the what uh, the major part of our broadcast uh, this this morning. Oh my God, it's like, it's four o'clock in the morning. We better get moving here. Uh, again, you know, you're only getting part of this broadcast for listening on podcast because we've been going live for quite a while. So uh, I'm just giving you the highlights and I am making it hopefully enjoyable. So uh, you're not, you're not going to be hearing a lot of this broadcast, the, the, the live version, just uh, if you're listening on pack and you're listening on the radio, you're going to get the whole thing. Maybe you're even going to go to sleep and, I only hear parts of it. Okay, let's move on to a to a to a cool song. Here we go.
Okay, I, 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 I talk, we talked briefly about uh, Huxley and uh, uh, Brave New World, which is uh, 1931, 1932, uh, and this whole dis dark dystopian world. I don't know if you read Brave, Brave New World. If you haven't, you, you really should. So it was, it was written uh, before uh, World War II. So in between the two wars, Huxley, in the 30s, Huxley wrote Brave New World because he was alarmed at the progress of technology and also alarmed that governments were using it to control the masses, and uh, especially in the means of war. And I think uh, Huxley was one of the people thinking about, hey, we're going to have another war after World War One. And of course, uh, um, so the uh, dystopia of 1984, uh, George Winston and the boys, and the Ministry of Truth, uh, right after World War Two, and then I think it was published late 1940s, and then Orwell died of pneumonia, tuberculosis. This brilliant author still had a lot more to say. Uh, so um, yeah, there's a little more, uh, a little. It's slightly darker for me than Brave New World. Um, and uh, it doesn't look at uh, it does look at technology, but not in the way that Orwell did, and or not in the way that uh, that Huxley did. And so this is going to move into this uh, I, I, moving out of that. So 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 Huxley wrote uh, the, through the doors of perception, which became a quite a controversial uh, uh, documentation of uh, the mescaline experience that he had. I don't know if you know about that. A lot of people do, and apparently a lot of people don't. It's a really great read, um, and so it comes after these two dystopian novels. And then Huxley was a, was a, a mild-mannered person. He was a, a very rational. Uh, he thought about things a lot. He he wasn't a, a he was a person that was considered largely very peaceful and deep thinker. Uh, very nice individual. Uh, he thought deeply about things and he thought long about them and often before he made a comment, when you watch interviews, uh, he really thinks about things before he says them. And I think his eyesight was a problem. Uh, and so that was, as we go more into about the, uh, this, this uh, short book, the doors of, Through the Doors of Perception, um, I think Huxley was looking at the possibilities of, of changing the dynamic of being cemented into a culture and a society that often de tells us what to do. It often makes its own its own decisions without, without us making them. Is there a chance to have a personal experience that can pull you out of this sort of almost slave-like uh, reality that we sometimes live in, you know, with our jobs and with our bills and with our mortgages, uh, with these wars that we have to go and fight? Um, is there something we can experience personally with the divine, with, uh, with the universe, with something that's outside of these systems of these powerful governments? And some people say, well, that's religion, that's what I get from religion. Uh, but for Huxley, uh, he, he thought deeply about the possibilities. And then he got involved in this whole thought of schizophrenia, which was a a thought then the uh, the deep the depth psychologist uh, Carl Jung and Freud, who sort of looked at, at the suppression of humans in modern society. You know uh, the all these rules we have, all these you know don't think about having sex with your with with the with your neighbor's beautiful wife across the across the way. Uh, you know don't don't think about that you're so angry at your boss you want to kill him or her. Uh, don't think about all these and and we push these things down. 
and, and, and anciently in ceremony and in tribal ceremony, you act these things out. You act these urges out and there's not literally, but at least most of the time, I guess the Aztec and the Mayans and to degree the uh, Europeans when they would behead people and torture them in public <laughs> and the guillotine, uh, we do act them out in, in publicly sometimes. But as we got more modern, there seemed to be this, this problem with suppressing things. And, you know, we're civilized. We have manners. We have all these rules and laws. And so we got to, you have to push down the, the, the basic nature of your human, you know, hey, we used to be apes. We were, but, you know, we have these the animal urges. But as it turns out, animals are actually, and I'm around wild animals a lot, are actually more humane than humans. <laughs> when you look at the wars and weapons of mass destruction, uh, I, I think that word civilized comes into question. And that's what Freud and, and Jung and others are starting to say is like, there's a lot more going on in your, in, in your, in your life than you're aware of, and our dreams and the suppression have a lot to say about it. And that was one of the things that uh, that Freud came up with was the death urge. It was seemed to be born with Homo sapiens. Beyond the animals, humans seem to have this this urge to like just destroy things, to kill themselves. There, and, and, and he felt that came from this modern connection of suppressing things through through uh, religion, through through state, uh, through uh, and, and of course. A lot of his preoccupations were uh, a sexuality and uh, that we were basically ancient, you know, tribal people that suddenly became modern. And then Jung, you know, goes more into uh, bringing things together and healing and finding balance. That's what Jungian thought was, was about, throwing all the archetypes and his almost religious fanaticism that follows him, which I don't think he would be very pleased with, because he was about coming into balance with yourself, opening your mind up to this beautiful universe, to the natural world. Jung uh, was a really cool person. Anna was a gifted uh, visionary. He had incredible dreams and visions, profound visions, prophetic visions. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. So, uh, just, just to make an uncomfortable case and point about suppression, uh, and, and, and pushing things down, and I had a number of friends that would, were obsessed with this, uh, Friends that are gay, and uh, friends that are highly sexual, and friends that had uh, addictions. Uh, religion could be a big problem for them because they just couldn't get past these things, and so they would push them down. And as I mentioned before, when you push something down and you resist it, then it's just a given that uh, it's just going to get more and stronger and stronger temptation. That was one of the beautiful things when I was in Rinzai Zen, is you would go into these forbiddens and, uh, and act them out in your mind. You weren't allowed to <laughs> literally act them out. And, but then to move beyond the pleasure of the event or the rage and see, see where, it, where it possibly could have ended up. That was one of the, one of the uh, Zazen meditations that I was involved in. Where, where will that take you when you do that? Go through the whole act of you know, having sex with your beautiful neighbor's wife across the street and that has four kids and a wonderful family 
uh, and go through, you know, the, the whole pleasurable part of it and then allow yourself to go through the really uncomfortable part afterwards, which most of us don't think about. When somebody is involved in infidelity, of course, or, or the act of murder, you don't think of the consequences afterwards. And that's one of the meditations, and at least the rims I is in order I was in, is you're going to have to take, take, take those actions and see what, what happens afterwards. So that was a really uh, a powerful benefit. So all these things I'd suppressed all my life, uh, I suddenly were allowed to come up in the Zazen sessions and, and just sit there and watch and see what, what they do. What, where, where do they come from? What, why do you have them? And a lot of that was based on these forbiddens we have in society. And I, I like to always point out to some of my friends that one of the most powerful elements of suppression is uh, the Native American genocide. That we killed millions of Native Americans and we stole their, their land. Um, you see this sign that says no trespassing, especially here in uh, uh, the railroad has them, and I've had encounters with the railroad police, and there's personal property on We're really big on, on owning personal property. But do we think about who we took that personal property from? Where, how, many pe how many indigenous people died so you could have that? What were the excuses you had to, to take that land from them, to, 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 to murder them? To, to send the, the army in. You know, this happened in Utah with, uh, with Patrick Connor. You know, the, the farmers and local people wanted that land. And so they were able to have power with the government to send Union troops in to slaughter and kill people like in the Bear River, now it used to be called the Bear River War when I was a boy, the Bear River Massacre. I did a whole uh, broadcast about this. That basically there were just women and children there, and the Union troops went in and killed all of them, raped them. This is account. There's accounts of this, and there's a couple of other skirmishes, several skirmishes, uh, in parts of Utah to, to get the land, and even a, a thing called the Mountain Meadows Massacre, where, where they tried to blame this on indigenous people, and it's a you know it's a controversial thing. I'm not going to go into the history of that, but do we think about that? That where we got the United States from? How many, you know, do the, and the Spanish Inquisition and the torture in South America and Central America and Mexico, colonial tortures, and, and then just this sheer taking of land and coming up with all these justifications, you know, in the name of God, like the old Eagle song that we played in previous, the last resort in a previous uh, episode. Um, you know, we justify these actions, uh, murder and rage and war, in the name of God whoever, you know, whatever. But that land that you own, that's your property, that you claim's yours, do you realize sometimes, in some situations, how much blood was shed in the, in the women and children that died there when they took that land away? Are the people that starved to death because they had no food to eat, like in the Bear River Massacre? That's where my family was not involved in the Bear River Massacre. It was part of the people that lived around the place where this, uh, up in the, the border of Utah and Idaho, where this, where this uh, supposed battle that we now know is a horrible massacre of women and children, babies. So, um, yeah, that, then we suppress that. We don't, we, you know, you wave that flag and, you know, it's just sort of the same thing when I went to, when I got in the Middle East and around Iraq, you know, wave that flag. Hey, I'm here because I'm a patriot and I want to defend my country. One of the horrible things that happened after that um, kind of destroys your patriotism when you feel when you realize that war was a waste of time. It didn't need to be committed or done. I'm <clears throat> bringing this up, and where does the doors of perception Huxley fit into this? Because I think that's what Huxley, the doors of perception, is 
part of that uh, of questioning what our government is doing, questioning what these systems are doing to us, instead of just standing in a line and mindlessly obeying. And that's one of the you know one of the orders in the Brave New World, and that's kind of what Winston Smith does in uh, Bra uh, 1984 is question why are we doing this. Why, why am I working at the, you know, the Ministry of Truth and editing this stuff, deleting these things, changing words, manufacturing propaganda to keep the war machine going? And look look where we're at in 2023. Did we get out of Afghanistan? And then we just dropped right into Ukraine. And you know, sooner or later, the odds are we're going to have soldiers over there. We've got China. We got, we got, we're losing the Middle East. Saudi Arabia doesn't want to talk to us anymore. You know, we're really sort of, we're in a, we're in a bad position. So, is there a way we can break out of this society and this government? Is there a way we can... I'm not saying taking over in a revolution. I hope that wouldn't happen and might happen. But I hope that as personal individuals we can experience uh, a spiritual awakening. Uh, that we follow something more than just a flag. That we follow a creator. We follow a, the beautiful processes of nature and the natural world for our brothers and sisters that aren't human that we see we're all connected and this is a really rare planet that we live on. We, we have found no other planet like this one and it may be this is it. And if so, what the hell are we doing destroying everything that's so fragile and so beautiful that the Creator has given to us? Why? And that's what Freud talked about, this death thing that humans seem to have. They want to kill things. They want to destroy things. In a way, you know, we used to blame that on wolves. I know wolves. I'm around... <laughs> They're not like that. We projected our own genocides of an indigenous people on the wolf. The Romans, you go back to Rome, you go back to these invasions of the British Isles, and you'll see that the wolf was used as the dragon, the sacred serpent. We talked about that before. It represents water and family became the devil. became something you slay and kill. Uh, become... We change these sacred things as we do in war. You know, that's the enemy. They, they're, they're inhuman. Look what they're trying to do so we can kill them. You know, we have these ways to justify things. I think, I think part of Huxley, you know, at looking now after Brave New World, looking at both World, One, world War I and World War II, is like, is there a way out of these really powerful mechanisms of government and society where we can find a personal opening to the Creator and to the Divine. And so, um, and that's what I'm going to go further here in, uh, in the doors, of, through the doors of perception. Uh, I, I want to, speaking of the Native American genocide, um, I, when I was a boy, I remember this really clearly. I don't remember the day or time. It was right after my, my, my father, my natural father, committed suicide. It was in 1969, I believe. And I won't go into details about that. I have another broadcast. And my, my stepfather was an extreme right. They were in the John Birch Society or like things. And, you know, pretty radical uh, right-winged, as we call them, political affiliations. And that's kind of how I grew up, being a patriot. And uh, if we need to take the government back from the, the Washington, D.C., we can do that. Kind of like the Trump thing. I, was, I, I grew up with that. We're, we're going to do that. We're going to have to take over the government and take it back, you know. And so, I, and we had arms and weapons in my house. Oh my God, I've lost track. Ammunition stored downstairs. I'm not. This is not against gun control because I'm actually uh, against gun control. Yeah, I grew up a hunter, uh, firing all kinds of different weapons and arms. I think there's a problem when you're built. When you have like, I, you know, I have a friend. He has 200 
guns. He doesn't have them just for, for the sheer joy of collecting. He believes there's going to be a takeover of the United States. So it's not about defending yourself. It's about, he, it's almost, he harbors a paranoia. When you go over there, it's just, it's just you, you dive right into the paranoia. The government's going to fall, and they're not going to come in my house and take my stuff. And, and it's just this, you know, it's, again, it's extremism. So, and I, I, I don't support uh, gun control for other reasons I don't want to talk about. Um, I don't carry guns. I, I, I just, here, two years ago, I shot uh, an antique uh, um, Winchester gun. 73, Winchester 73 I shot. Because it's a beautiful weapon. I, when I was a boy, I got to, to fire it. And uh, it was an interesting experience because I, you know, I, I, it, I hadn't picked up a, a weapon since I'd been in the war. It was really, um, it was hard. Uh, the, the, the boy I was and the innocence I had was all gone. <clears throat> and uh, the Winchester 73, if you know about the history of that gun and you know about the curses on the family that was involved with that, I think that's, um, it killed a lot of indigenous people. It changed the way things were done. I never seen anything. It was a great weapon, the gun to go out there and, and get your deer with, you know. And, and isn't it amazing? I, mean, I, I and my cousin, who's now deceased, that's we enjoyed shooting his. He had a, I believe it was a Winchester seventy-three that came from one of my grandfather's. I'm not sure. All right, let's uh, it's let's go to a song, and uh, it's it's hard not to get preoccupied when you're live, uh, and you don't really get to go back and listen to things until afterwards. And you wish you would have said this or that. I can see. You know, editing is something I was trained to do, and it's always a temptation to go back and edit things. I do a little, if there's something in there that's um, not part of the broadcast, but I largely do, I never edit my live broadcast. And so um, you get them as they are, and I, and I make make mistakes. Let's go to a song, and then we'll, we'll come back to this thought. Oh! 
so I, I, I had a, uh, that was a good, uh, um, a good, uh, uh, and native song, Hopi, I believe, uh, great stuff, um, I, I, I love Hopis, I spend a lot of my life there, uh, and with them, and, uh, in the villages, and it's, it's, I can't even imagine my life without uh, Hopis or Dene or Zuni people because uh, they're so much a part of my life. Um, so, getting back to the thought, I, it, it, trying to break out of this uh, the system of war, the system of violence, the system of extreme control by it just seems like you know it always starts out nice and then ends up being this huge bureaucracy, this this machine. Uh, and then you get something like the French Revolution or the Bolshevik Revolution. You get the, people want something different. You know, you have the king and the queens. Just they they went too far. That the president went too far, and we're going to have a we're going to have a revolution. Listen, my friend, revolutions are horribly bloody, and we like to really uh, play up the one we had in 1776. But uh, if you look into the, those battles, um, they weren't the, the best thing. They were. It's a pretty tough violent situation and often revolutions don't go the way as as planned so if you want to be involved in a revolution i would suggest why don't you try being a a soldier of fortune go fight in a couple of wars and see how that how that how you like that and then imagine that on the street you live and with your neighbors and shooting each other and bombs being dropped and 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 the police not being involved just utter chaos uh and, and imagine what that what that's like uh, and, and and living in that, you know, imagine you yourself being in Ukraine right now. How would you? How would you act? How would you feel? So the indigenous person has had 200, 300. Let's see, when did the Spanish come? Fifteen to, to Veracruz, Cortez, early fifteen hundreds. So since that then to this to at least the end of the nineteenth century has been this just utter sheer genocide for indigenous people that were, that are the original inhabitants of this country and this landscape. Just immense suffering. John Trudell, who is he? I still remember when I was a boy, and I talked about this uh, listening on the radio to John Trudell one night. I, I tuned him in. You know, this came from Alcatraz. I don't remember these broadcasts where Ames said, hey, you know what? We're kind of sick of what you're doing to us. We're kind of tired of this genocide. We're kind of tired of the way you perceive us, that we're always on welfare, that we're, that we're always getting money from the government, which, by the way, is bullshit. Have you <laughs> You got to go hang out on the reservation. I do. It's kind of a second home. I don't see large, huge funding going on there and people sitting back and getting all this money from the government. You know, the government cheese. <laughs> no, no, no. In a lot of ways... Uh, it's still going on. What went on long ago? There's still still problems, uh, s severe problems with with trying to destroy a culture, with trying to, to take people out of a culture and making them learn a foreign language. Still, I know people. I went. I, I grew up in a place where there was a boarding school, Intermountain Boarding School in Brigham City, Utah, and I and I know people now in their 70s and 80s that went to those schools. Some of them were my age going to boarding schools and then being forbidden to speak your language, having your mouth washed out, knowing that you have great-grandfathers that were shot, killed, and murdered. I, I had a friend when I was in Brigham City, I believe is a direct descendant uh, of uh, Wounded Knee, that his great-grandfather died at Wounded Knee. If you want to read some, you know, the massacre of Wounded Knee, and it was a massacre of innocent people. 
and there's all reasons why it happened, but go back and read that. Having that on your mind uh, and, and in your family history is can be pretty radical stuff. So in 1969, I, I heard this voice. I've never, I think that's kind of why I do radio. And listening to this voice that was, I don't even, did he refer to himself as John Trudell? I don't remember. It was so, I listened to several broadcasts and I was just mesmerized. And uh, my stepfather, he's a pretty good guy. He was a nice guy. But he was really extreme right, and, and he caught me one night. <laughs> no, I asked him, I said, come and listen to this, Dad. And we sit down and listen to it. And he was cool, he just listened to it, and he kept shaking his head, and then he reached over and turned the radio off, and he said, you know, I don't want my, my, my son, my stepson, listening to communists. <laughs> and this whole episode had been about uh, the Vietnam War, because Trudell had been in the Vietnam War. What's the Vietnam War? It wasn't very patriotic. I didn't even realize, he, and he, war, he warns his audience about going to war, about this genocide. You know, we're just, we're continuing the genocide in other countries, in Vietnam and Afghanistan and Ukraine or whatever. And it's just this continuization of the same thing that we formed our country from. And so I listened to this, and one of the warnings he gave was not to go to war. You know, don't be a soldier. He said, you know, I, I made a mistake, and I, and I got... I got thrown into this whole situation as a soldier and I started doing the same thing that was done to my people, to other people that were, were indigenous natives. You know, I, I, I've grown up, I, I grew up with, I, I've never known a time when I didn't have, a, I, I don't like that word Indian, but when I had a, a native friend. I just always had someone there, even when I was a little boy, and there was a native elder across the street that would have me come in his house and he would tell me stories and he was just a wonderful guy he was a college student I think he's even giving his PhD but he's still a traditional Diné and he took care of me he told me stories of his people of uh, Monument Valley uh, he was just beautiful I had this beautiful Ye'i rug on the wall and had his paraphernalia he'd pray for me and and I think uh, he even made I don't even remember this some kind of a prophecy that I would go to a war and a uh, little boy doesn't understand that. But I've always had my indigenous brothers and sisters to watch over me and uh, take care of me. And more so when I came home from a war, it was the only place I could find any kind of um, solitude and healing was in the indigenous way. Uh, I didn't find it in my religion. I didn't find it in my culture. I turned back to my native brothers and sisters. I was in wrestling, football, track and field. I mean, I grew up with these guys. They were my, my best friends. <laughs> uh, sometimes, often, sometimes the only white guy in the whole group, you know. And as a, as a medic for a while, I served with a, in a platoon that was largely uh, Navajo and because the other medics wouldn't do it. I was like, hey, let me do it. These, I grew up with these guys. <laughs> these are my friends. And so I spent this wonderful time with a largely Navajo uh, group of soldiers, and I, I just, it was wonderful, I, and I was their medic, and I took care of them, and they, and they were good to me, and we had a lot of good times, and laughed a lot, and um, it was great. So, I heard this broadcast, and I was a boy, it was amazing, I've never forgotten it, I remember the exact words, I, I, I'm not sure, I couldn't find it, I looked to see if I could find that original broadcast, I did find some a broadcast that uh, John Trudell did. He's an amazing guy. Had a really tragic life. Quite sad. You should look him up and read about him.
but he was gifted for public speaking and he was an actor in some movies too just had a, I, I actually I heard him speak a few times he just has this amazing persona this amazing he's very charismatic and he really carries a powerful message but I, I never forgotten those evenings as a boy I'd listen to uh, to his radio show I believe first started out Alcatraz and it just really grabbed me and I didn't realize that uh, most of my life would be involved with indigenous and native people and in fact it would be the the thing that would save my life I guess when I came home from a war give me back my sanity and to this day uh, it's still paying paying me back um, over and over again and uh, I don't know what I would do without my uh, native brothers and sisters so let's listen to this uh, uh, this radio broadcast partly by uh, John Trudell Nailed source down. It's kind of hard to broad, to find any of his stuff because it's now owned by corporations. <laughs> you have to pay them money. I hope that the money is going in a good place to play his stuff. So let's just play this. Let's play this bit. We're faced with a very serious situation in this generation. There are insane people who wish to rule the world. They wish to continue to rule the world on violence and repression. And we are all the victims of that violence and repression. We, as the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, have been resisting this violence and this oppression for 500 years. We know that the black people have been resisting it for at least that long. And we know that the white people have had to endure it thousands of years. And now it's come full swing to this generation that we live in, nuclearization of the world. You see, this cannot be we cannot allow this to continue to go on. We cannot do it. You see, we cannot expect that the pro-nuclear oppressor, that other side, we cannot expect that they're going to change for us. They are going to become more brutal. They're going to become more repressive because it's a matter of dollars and their illusionary concepts of power. We have to reestablish our identity we have to understand who we are and where we fit in the natural order of the world because our oppressor deals in illusions. They tell us that it is power, but it is not power. They may have all the guns and they may have all the racist laws and judges and they may control all the money, but that is not power. These are imitations of power and they are only power because in our minds we allow it to be power but it's all an imitation. Racism and violence, racism and guns, economics, the brutality of the American corporate state way of life is nothing more than violence and repression and it has nothing to do with power. It is brutality. It is a lack of a sane, it's, it's, it's a lack of a sane balance. The people who have created this system and they perpetuate this system, they are out of balance. They have made us out of balance. They have come into our minds and they've come into our hearts and they've programmed us because we live in this society and they've put us out of balance. And because we are out of balance, we no longer have the power to deal with them. They have conquered us as a natural power. See, we are power. They deal in violence and repression. We are power. We are a part of the natural world. All of the things of the natural world are a natural part of the creation and feed off the energy of our sacred Mother Earth. We are power, but they have separated us from our spiritual connection to the earth, so people feel powerless. We look at the oppressor and we look at the enemy because they have the most guns and the most lies and the most money. People start to feel 
powerless. We are power. We are a natural part of the creation. We were put here on the sacred Mother Earth to serve a purpose. And somewhere in the history of people, we're forgetting what the purpose is. The purpose is to honor the Earth. The purpose is to protect the Earth. The purpose is to live in balance with the Earth. The Earth is our mother. And we will never free ourselves as human people. We will never feel free ourselves as sexual people. We will never free ourselves until we address the issue of how we live in balance with the Earth. Because all of our resistance and all of our struggle is hollow, it's false, it's another one of those oppressors' hypocrisies. If we do not look out for the welfare of the earth first, because I do not care who it is, any child that turns on their mother is living in a terrible, terrible confusion. The earth is our mother. We must take care of the earth. They pollute. This oppressor, this machine, this machine that has gone mad and run amok, it is berserk. They keep telling us, you know, progress. They keep telling us face reality. Well, let's deal with reality. Reality is the earth can no longer take this attack. We cannot, we can no longer allow this thing to continue where it's polluting the air. It's polluting the water, polluting our food. They pollute the air, they pollute the water, they pollute our food, they pollute our minds. They put us out of balance. They have made us be insecure with ourselves. They have put us into a situation where we have to play many roles. We got, you know, we got to be chauvinist or we got to be some, on some kind of a class trip or some kind of an illusionary power trip. We got to play a role, see? We got to play a role to communicate with other people. We got to go through this charade because they have attacked our self-confidence. They have attacked our self-confidence and they have made us to listen to them. They have made us to believe that they are power, but they are not. They are violent and they are brutal, but they are not power. We are a natural part of the earth. As a natural part of the earth, we have the energy and the power that is the earth. The earth will take care of us if we will remember the earth in more than just our words. If we will remember the earth in our way of life, we are all here to play a role and all of the animals and all of the life on the earth is playing its proper role except the human people. Somehow we are, re we are betraying, we are betraying our purpose here and that is why we live in the confusion that we live in. They tell us, they want us to believe that we are powerless. We are a natural part of the earth. We are an extension of that natural energy, that natural energy which is spirit and which is power. Power, a blizzard is power. An earthquake is power. A tornado is power. These are all things of power that no oppressor, no machine age can put these things of power in a prison. No machine age can make these things of power submit to the machine age. That is natural power. And just as it takes millions and billions of elements to make a blizzard to happen or to make the earthquake, to make the earth to move, then it's going to take millions and billions of us. We are power. We have that power. We have the potential for that power. I remember in the 60s and the 70s, and I heard all this thing about power to the people, and I never really understood because everyone was saying power to the people, and they were talking about demonstrator, they were talking about vote, they were talking about dealing on the terms of the oppressor. Our power will come back to us, our sense of balance will come back to us when we go back to the natural way of protecting and honoring the earth. 
if we have forgotten how to do it and if we think that it looks overwhelming and we can never accomplish it, then all we have to do in each of us as an individual can go out and we can find some spot on the earth that we could relate to. Feel that energy, feel that power. That's where our safety will come. The earth will take care of us. We have to understand that the American corporate state will not take care of us. They do not care about us. Maximize their profit. That is where their whole life value is placed upon maximize the profit. They will turn us against each other to maximize the profit because they have done it in the past. Nuclear energy, it's the final assault. Nuclear energy should tell each and every one of us that they have gone beyond the reasons of sanity, that they are no longer sane, that they no longer deal with the real natural world because they want to create a radioactivity, all right, that is going to make it impossible for the Mother Earth to take care of our life. We will not destroy the world. We are arrogant and we are stupid and we are foolish if we believe that we will destroy the world. Man has the ability to destroy all of the people's ability to live on the earth, but we do not have the power to destroy the earth. The earth will heal itself. The earth will purify itself of us. If it takes a billion years to get rid of the radiation, the earth will do it because the earth has that kind of a time. We do not. Our obligations and our loyalties have to be to the earth and they have to be to our sense of community and to our people and to our relations. Our obligations and our loyalty should not be to a government that will not take care of our needs. Our obligations and loyalty should not be to a government that has proven time and time again that it is the enemy of the people unless the people are rich in dollars. That has been the consistent history of Western civilization and the American corporate state government. That's reality. They are not our friends. They do not care for us. We have to face that reality that we have an enemy. We want to talk about nuclear war. Everybody's afraid of nuclear war that's going to come between the Americans and the Russians and the Chinese or whoever to wage a war against us and it's going to be called the, the war of law and order because they're twisting it around. For 500 years, my people have resisted. For 500 years, we will resist again if it becomes necessary. That's, uh, that's powerful stuff. That was given a little later after the uh, original AIM broadcast from Alcatraz Island. And he, he just got more and more powerful. I think he died of cancer not too long ago. Had a terribly tragic life. Served as a Vietnam veteran, but his voice remained powerful for, for a long time. And uh, I think his little boy later on changed my life. I didn't realize what war was all about. And how deceptive patriotism can be until I actually participated in the event of war. And I've never been the same. It just, it just ruined me in a lot of ways. 
And I think I think we're at a, a really crucial time in our history, and the possibility of having a nuclear holocaust is every day mounting. And we've got to change something. We've got to we've got to be able to step over the top of these world powers. There's so many of us, and say, hey, this this stuff's going to stop with me, at least with me personally. Um, and I, I try to make a difference in a peaceful way. And indigenous Native American ways is, is, is a lot of my life. I spend a lot of my time there. They're my brothers and sisters. I would not have survived coming home from the war I came home from if I didn't have the indigenous way. And I think we need to think about it. That's one of the passages. That's one of the doorways that's been proven for thousands of years that it can work if we turn back to the natural world, to the gift of this beautiful planet we live on, and 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 back to the Creator, and turn away from corporation and money. blind with their goggles are turned away from the glass or from the bright light which accompanies it. Fifteen seconds to go. This explosion will be the equivalent of 15,000 tons of high explosives. July 16th, 1945, at almost 5.30 a.m. in the Alamogordo Desert in southern New Mexico, the first nuclear device atomic bomb was exploded, and a tremendous effect took place. Those that did not wear the protective eye goggles were blinded temporarily, even from five miles away. They say the flash was so bright that it reflected off the surface of the moon. I don't know who was up there to see it, but that's what they say. <laughs> I don't know, maybe it was a broke-down UFO up there, flying saucer. Hopefully it wasn't made at Sears, because it'll never make it back to Earth. But we have Walmart now, so let's not be afraid. Anyway, almost 80 years later, has it all been for the better? Or have we created something so horrifying in a situation that's so unstable that sooner or later, and it looks like it might be sooner, we're going to have ourselves a nuclear holocaust? 
And it's hard to believe in 2023 we're back to where we were 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago. Only this time it's a little more frightening because we have hypersonic missiles that can move at 5, 6 miles per second and carry nuclear warheads. Uh, we have a country that we're supposedly standing against, a non-NATO country, that has the world's most powerful nuclear device, the Tsar bomb. We don't have anything even close to that. And rumor has it, pretty strong rumor, that the Soviet Union has something even stronger and more formidable than the Tsar bomb. And we have lost our friendships to some degree, to a great degree, with China, with most countries in the Middle East, including now Saudi Arabia. Um, things are starting to change. And as we escalate the situation, you know, pouring arms into, uh, into the Ukraine, as these two notorious world powers that's been going at it since the end of World War II, are once again locked at horns. And neither one has a history of ever giving up. And to the last man. And the propaganda is so steep now, and the president of Ukraine somewhat seemingly prostituting himself for the nations, the NATO nations, to keep sending money in. And we know that propaganda is being manufactured in a way that's just unbelievable. You, you just don't know what's going on on either side. And so, um, similar to Vietnam, where we just poured in all this money and all these arms, and then sooner or later, we had to go to combat in what became a horrifying war, probably even more disastrous in North Korea. We just haven't had any good wars since World War II. We all know that it was pretty undisputed that World War II had to be done. And so, uh, but these other wars that's happened, I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's a real problem. And, and now, you know, it's the, the finger shaky. The finger that can launch a nuclear holocaust. Oh my God, is that, what, what are we doing here? You know, I, th I, I, I think we're all really sick of this. It's just like we don't have control and say so on any of this anymore. And, and there's a lot of us. And we have the power to change things, even though we think we don't. Maybe the worst thing is thinking that we can't. That we can't do something about a situation that could destroy almost every one of us. Not destroy the planet. She will go on, as John Trudell so powerfully pointed out. But we may not. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. Every spaceman knows you just gotta have Hostess Twinkies along. Even space girls know it. You get a big delight in every bite. Delicious Hostess cream-filled Twinkies taste out of this world. With luscious, creamy white filling inside, soft golden sponge cake outside. You get a big delight in every bite. 
Yep, smart spacemen always have plenty of good taste in Twinkies along. Wherever they go. Hostess Twinkies. It's interesting when you go back and you read about Trinity and uh, all the things that went on there and now we're going to have a movie that's going to be opened up and I apparently uh, it's it's an amazing film. It's actually going to be on film. We've, most of our stuff's been on digital 70 millimeter film which they call IMAX now. An opportunity to see Lawrence of Arabia when I was a boy. Uh, Ten Commandments. That tells, I'm aging myself here. I think 2001 A Space Odyssey. I'm not sure, but I, I got to see 70 millimeter film. It was, it's just, there's nothing like it. And of course, that's one of my uh, majors at school was film studies, uh, filmmaking, and there's nothing that compares to film. Um, film is a medium that really has an incredible resolution and, and an effect. Uh, and so it, 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 sort of, it sort of goes beyond uh, the digital. We have a filmmaker now uh, that's that's considered one of the greatest filmmakers of the 21st century. He just can do fantastic things. So I'll be interested to see what direction this movie goes in. I'm sure it has a dire warning to it. How could it not? I mean, considering what we did with that in 1945, and that we purposely targeted huge populations of civilians uh, to, to make an impact on places where things were being produced. Like I said, uh, looking back, uh, with hindsight, is a lot easier now, almost 80 years later, than it was then, where a lot of our troops were dying, uh, you know, train loads of dead soldiers were coming back, uh, and people were really upset, and it looked like the war was not going to end, apparently. Now, this goes in line with firebombing more innocent people, like we did in Dresden, and that I've talked about that before. And, Slaughterhouse Five, uh, a soldier was present, an eyewitness was present to see all that happen and how it shockingly uh, changed his entire life. He couldn't believe it. And I think this is, the, this is the effect that you have when, you, when, you, when you're in a war, is you can't believe it. You, you've been raised a certain way, you've been raised to be patriotic. I'm not sure exactly how, how Kurt Vonnegut was raised, uh, but certainly after he came from home from the war, he became quite... Uh, uh, skeptical uh, and quite outspoken about war and the, the other war novel Catch-22 which wasn't popular with some people because it sort of uh, assaulted uh, patriotism um, and we did some very dr you know World War II is not without its uh, drastic effects and uh, especially in terms of Nagasaki and Hiroshima and uh, Dresden Germany uh, and then, of course, the building of the wall and all the things that went on that way. Um, there's a lot of things. Every war has problems. But generally, we kind of knew what, what was going on there. Uh, it's become something totally different now because it's, it's versed in materialism. It's versed in money. You know, the, the whole thing that started this Ukrainian war was a pipeline, for God's sakes. And we were unwilling to let to let Putin go through with it. I don't know all the particulars. I mean, Ukraine and Russia and these people that used to, these countries that used to be part of the, of the former uh, Soviet Union uh, have been going at it for a while. And uh, they, they want to break away. I understand that. And so there's been long-term things going on. And I think even historically, uh, you know, Ukraine has lots of different types of people and they have uh, indigenous tribes like we have here. Uh, and so one of my 
previous girlfriend is Ukrainian, still a really close friend of mine, tribal. So um, it's it's a long going thing, but it, is it worth the entire world getting involved in a term NATO and non-NATO? Is it worth destroying the population of the planet over such a thing? And um, you know it, the the rationality here is is is, is a little crazy. Uh, we're we're you know as I said before we're we're in big trouble, and and what are we going to do? Uh, and so I, I don't know. And I I think the big question, and I keep bringing up the doors of perception by Huxley, and one of the avenues is is what what out there can get us to change directions. And and I think I really think that's sort of what Orwell and Huxley were looking at in their two uh, hugely famous novel, dystopian novels, uh, considering the future of society and the control of governments and the control of the state over, over the individual and, and the, these, these laws that we have and these restrictions we have and the power of the police and the power to enforce things that aren't necessarily about freedom. And that's, that's why, that's why I'm, I'm against gun control. Because and, and you know people get upset when you start getting talking about guns and I mentioned before I haven't carried a gun since the war and I shot I had one day of shooting a Winchester 73 uh, and it was it was a it was dramatic I, I I had lost my innocence but I I think again when we start having this these kind of control features that at some point were good and just went too far. And I think it's your choice. I think when you harbor paranoias and you start, you have stuff like armor-piercing rounds and uh, automatic weapons in your house that are supposed to be illegal, and I have friends that have those, doesn't take much to make a M16, an AK-47 automatic. You just have to remove a few things or put a few things back in. There you go. You know, to have hundreds of guns, as I as I mentioned, one friend has at least 200 pistols and rifles and fully stocked ammunition. I grew up in a household like that. Uh, and my stepfather was a great guy, but he harbored extreme paranoias. And the culture I came from uh, had a long dispute, Mormonism with, with uh, the federal government. And dealing, going back with polygamy and other things, going back to the state of Deseret. Uh, Mormons wanted to have their own place after they'd been persecuted, after there had been shot at and killed. They, they fled uh, the Midwest and came, to, came west. But, um, you know, there's already indigenous people living there. There are already tribes living there. And then all the things that went on after that to try to come in and start farming areas that have been traditionally Native Americans to bring the Union Army in and have these things that were supposed to be wars that ended up being more like massacres and indigenous people starving to death. White settlers starving, not understanding the landscape, what it's like to plant, understanding the indigenous tribes that had been there thousands of years, thinking it was their right to have their land. And you know, it's it's again looking back, it's 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 hindsight. But here we are in 2023, and we have the kind of technology, especially with weapons of mass destruction, chemical and biological weapons, which is what happened to me. Those are the wounds I received, and, and uh, I, many experimental vaccinations. Many people in my unit got sick, some died, um, and I'm still suffering from the results of chemical and biological warfare to this day. And uh, I talked about that, and just a sort of 
backwards uh, understanding that the enemy, the supposed enemy we had, uh, the Iraqis, um, were dressed in our uniforms, had our ammunition, had our weapons. Where did, where did they get that stuff? Of course, you know, you have to go back to the Iranian-Iraqi war that was in the 1980s. Remember that? When we tried to take the, our special ops and go in and, and go into Iran, it became this total embarrassment for the Carter administration, similar to the Obama administration and Hillary and assassinating the wrong man and all the things that happened there. We, you know, we just kind of blow it. And, um, yeah, so we started sending all, all these biological and chemical agents into Iraq, who, you know, we, we were supporting, and Russia started sending all, and all their biological and chemical warfare, not to mention all the ballistics and bombs and jet aircrafts, and, you know, it, it was Russia against the United States again. And the, what was left over when we, when, we, when we left after the Iran and Iranian conflict, which caused nothing but huge amounts of, of calamit calamitous waves of conflict and terrorism, you know, if you kill my family, if you kill my all the people on my street uh, and, and kill my children, I'm going to be pretty upset. I'm going to do something about that. And you have to realize that we, we have helped sponsor terrorism, if not started. And that word terrorism is loaded. It depends on what side you're on. We're, we're the, uh, who is the terrorist, the British or the Americans? During the, you know, it, it depends on what side you're on. And, um, it's just... It's just got to the point it's ridiculous. And always up being these two huge world powers fighting for each other. And you know, in the middle of that, and I and I listened to to Radio China on the shortwave, and it's a lot different than when I listened to it in the nineteen seventies. They they want peace. They want to have some kind of uh, peaceful situation. They don't want to have a nuclear war. And listen, China has some stuff we don't even know about. It's really frightening. They have the most advanced uh, rocket systems, engines in the world. We were buying those from the Chinese and, in part, the Russians for our supposed nuclear weapons. So, what what's what's going to happen here? Is 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 the is the island a, is Taiwan worth this getting into World War Three? I, I don't think I don't I don't really think so. I think we need to start minding our own business and take care of ourselves. Look at the poverty in this country. Look at how disconnected from the politicians we are. No matter what we say or do, no matter who you vote for, it doesn't even make a goddamn bit of difference. Sorry, I'm I need murky here. <laughs> it doesn't seem to matter. We're more helpless than we've ever been before, because it's we have a country that's that's owned by corporations, that's owned by 3-4% of, of, of an upper class of people. There's no, it's not a middle class. We don't have a voice anymore. And now we have this thing called nuclear warfare that we, we, thought, we kind of thought it was over, right? I mean, I kind of thought back in the 80s and 90s, early 2000s, hey, we're, we're kind of done with this nuclear situation. We started to disarm and not test nuclear weapons and... Uh, Russia was a little skeptical. They they kept on for a while, and uh, hey, it, it's not over. It's worse. It's a worse situation, I think, now than it was then. And we have children. We have young men that may have to serve in a war very similar, if not worse, than Vietnam. The the potential for Ukraine, the Ukraine war to go on, and even if this one ended, another one would start, is is huge. It may last for years. It would go. Hey, we're out of Afghanistan now. Hey, we're out of Vietnam now. 
hey, we're out of, you know, uh, Yemen now. It's just, it just never ends. We're not out of anything. We just go back into something else and spend billions, if not trillions of dollars, and force other countries in the NATO, hey, we're going to send all these arms, and we've got this president in a lot of ways that seemingly is prostituting himself to send all these arms into his country. I don't blame him. I understand where he's at. But has anything really happened? Is anybody winning there, or is it just this skirmish that's going to go on and on because you have two people that aren't, they're going to go down to the last man. The last man. It's just not going to end. You go in and invade the Russian, you know, Russian government or invade Ukraine. It's just these guys fight to the death. They've had histories of, of stubbornness, history, horrible histories that, that they have strong backbone. You just, it's just not going to happen. It's the same with the Iranians. I mean, we're in a time period where we need to, to look, to look at, to look at the potential Audi piece. But can we? And so that, that kind of leads into the next part of this broadcast. Let's go to a song quick.
If the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear to man as it is, infinite. For man has closed himself up till he sees all things through the narrow chinks of his personal cavern. So that's a, that's a, from a, the writing, I think it comes from the, the Marriage of Heaven and Hell by William Blake, Blake uh, one of the great romantic poets and artists. He was an amazing artist. And he was a man that had uh, fantastic visions and dreams naturally. I'm not sure how much that was enhanced by uh, hallucinogenic plants and other mixtures, but uh, William Blake was the man when it came to visions and dreams. And uh, he would know about that. And then he felt strongly, and this is what leading to Huxley's book, Through the Doors of Perception, Blake felt strongly that um, mankind has this limited perception uh, of, of the reality around him, of the broader and deeper reality of the universe. Um, that we are often limited by our culture and by our laws and by our fear and maybe just limited because um, it's, it's healthy not to know everything that's out there. It can drive you kind of mad, kind of insane. I mean, can your brain handle the universe at large? Maybe there's a reason that we don't pull it all in. But maybe it gets so extreme now, especially in this time period, and in Huxley's in particular in the mid-1950s, uh, where we're, we're just so limited by government and by laws that we no longer um, have the freedom as an individual that was supposed to be promised to us when this nation was formed, putting aside the indigenous uh, element where they totally lost their freedom. We took that away. Uh, in, in, in light of our own. And now, all these years later, of course, we're looking back saying, oh, you know, that was kind of a big mistake. Um, I, I don't know. So, um, I think uh, Huxley, and this, this, I think this is eventually going to lead up to the psychedelic era of the 1960s. And why? Why did that happen? Of course, one of the main reasons was Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam was just this complete... Uh, catastrophe. And when I was in the military, there were still people from Vietnam in combat that were in leadership positions. And some of them were my close friends, and, we, and they would talk to me about being in these just horrible experiences in, in combat with Agent Orange, with... Uh, I have one friend that won the Silver Star. He was actually at Hamburger Hill. Sergeant Miller won the Silver Star. He was one of the last surviving people in his part in his platoon. It was a, a night of hell. He said, "You don't have any choice. If you're going to survive, you got to be a hero." And I and he hated that term, hero. He said, "I did what I needed to do to survive, and I watched my closest friend die, bleed to death in a foxhole, because the because the combat was so intense, he couldn't get out of the foxhole all night. And he was a medic, and that's how I met him. He was a one of the medics that helped train me and also talked to me before I went to a war because I was horrified. I didn't want to go. And I, and I said, well, what do you do, Sergeant Miller? He said, Dave, you survive. You do what you have to do. There are no heroes. They're just survivors. And if there's medals afterwards, then there's medals. But he said, I'll never be the same. I see. And he said, I wish you weren't going. He said, because I'm sorry, you're probably going to have the kind of experience or you'll never be the same. 
when people look at you as like some kind of freak. You said, I've been a freak since the day I come home in 1970. So what can you do to stop this situation? I mean, history is a nightmare from which I'm trying to awake. That famous quote from, from the great novel Ulysses. But it isn't about that. It's just reoccurring and there's nothing we can do about it. It's like we forget purposely. The powers that be help us to forget and charge us with patriotism. And it always ends up being the same thing. And the Irish people where, you know, Ulysses comes from Irish culture are very familiar with the takeover, with, with war, with trying to fight the English. You know, Irish today are still tribal, like our Native Americans. There's still people speaking Gaelic, still people trap, although smaller groups still practicing traditional ways. And um, they're very familiar with terrorism. They're very familiar with Northern Ireland, you know, the whole thing there. It's just, it's the Irish people have tried to resist. These are indigenous native people. They're, and, they're, and, they're, and they have beautiful hearts. Part of my family's from Ireland, and I'm proud of them. Um, and a lot of indigenous people that are Native Americans have an affiliation with uh, traditional Irish people that goes way back. You can look that up on uh, the internet if you want and see that promise that the uh, that natives, that uh, Irish made to uh, Native American groups with potatoes and other foodstuffs. So what do we do? What, what can we do to change the situation? And first of all, to, to change ourselves. Um, what is out there in that broader and larger reality that William Blake talked about? What's out there? What do mystics and visionaries see? What is this amazing experience that someone like the, the, the great prophet Muhammad had in the cave with Gabriel? What, what happened there? He was even accused of, of, of being possessed by demons, by, by being making up the story. But it, it became quite obvious that something radical happened to Muhammad. And that's not just his name. It's a very long name. Is it amazing? The, the Quran is an amazing book. I read it during a war. I read the Quran during a war. I was amazed how beautiful it was. I even contemplated for a short time because I was so disenfranchised with my own country and my position as a soldier is becoming Islamic. I, I'd had it. I'd had it with all the murder and death and the bombings that had been going on. And, oh my. A beautiful friend prayed out in the middle of the desert. It was so much power to his faith. It's, you know, as you hear the, this, these prayers that they have five times a day, in the middle of the dust of the desert, he bowed down on this little rug. And, I, and, and it, it was so powerful that it made me cry. And here's a soldier, you know, in my Kevlar, my, my, uh, my flat jacket, and with my weapon, and loaded, you know, ready to use it, um, and listening to my friend uh, pray. And, it, and you could hear missiles and bombs going off, and, I, and he still insisted on praying, and the power, the faith in that moment was riveting. Um, so what can we do to awaken to, to what religion, will to, uh, what accident, uh, what powerful event will open our mind up, or is it something that happens little by little over a, over a process of time? Now I want to bring up one thing. Uh, when I was a boy in high school, I was a boy, I think it was around freshman or sophomore, we would uh, go into town, uh, you know, it's from a little farming community, as I say, Brigham City, 
and I hung out with some uh, kind of radical people, I guess, for high school. <laughs> and we go to these big uh, pot parties. I didn't smoke pot that much. I did a little bit. And uh, often at these parties, you know, we're all young, and there's girls there and stuff like that. And you're not, you know, good Mormons don't do stuff like this. At least that's what they like to say anyway. But, you know, everybody wants to experiment around. So we're at this party, and there, and there was always these, these, in particular, one native. I think he was like 6'5". He was really tall and, and quite good-looking. And, and I remember he used to wear a lot of rings. And he had tattoos when, in a time when people didn't have tattoos. One that said the 82nd Airborne. Uh, and uh, and some, I think he even wore his medals once. He may have had the bronze medal, maybe, maybe even the silver star. And um, Navajo, Diné. He was so lost, I remember that. He would just sit there. Uh, sometimes you'd see him crying or not talking to anybody. He just wanted the company of somebody, and he chose young kids that weren't so judgmental about him being, you know, back then veterans were really frowned on, especially combat ones, and especially if you're native. Uh, not as much with Dene as with Hopi and Zuni, because the Dene, uh, Hopi in particular, um, have a sort of a promise, unspoken promise, where you don't go to war, because they realize war was what we instituted on them. But some Hopis went, some some uh, that were code talkers that were Hopis. But uh, Diné have a different practice. The warrior is respected, but a Hopi, not so much, because uh, they're a peaceful people. And they make promises in their rituals and rituals and ceremonies and in their societies and to not fight wars, uh, to not support the United States in wars, because that's what happened to them. You know, the cavalry would come to Hopi and the waving flag and, and, and take the children away in chains. Uh, they went to islands of Alcatraz. I hope you were against it. So, Hopi's done. It was a hard time, especially for Pueblo people, to come home from Vietnam because you not only were you were not only frowned upon by um, by society at large, but your people, your, your even your mother and father. I talked to a native uh, guy who just got home from Vietnam, and his mom and dad were furious. They, you know, they they get mad in a different way. They wouldn't talk to him. They didn't want to know about the war. They disagreed with him going. They disagreed with him even being part of the army and just this traumatic situation where he finally had to leave his Pueblo and hitchhike out and try to find somebody or something that would understand this madness of war that he'd been involved in. Come on, folks. Can... You, you think it's easy for a Russian soldier? You think they have any choice? My thing is I support all soldiers because they have to go to war. What, wrong or right, they still have to fight it. That was my whole problem when I went to war. Is I, I gained an empathy for the enemy because they suffered. Because they weren't, they were helpless. They these are people that didn't want to be in that situation. They, they tried to retreat, and we killed them. We slaughtered them, as we had done so many times before, as we had done to the indigenous Native Americans. Um, we did awful things. We committed crimes against humanity, and there's buried <clears throat> in a Middle Eastern desert between Iraqi and 
Saudi Arabia buried all the wounded and dead. And, and I don't think a lot of soldiers have forgotten what we did. Um, you do things like that. And so this, this, this beautiful Navajo, he was a good looking guy. I mean, I, back then, I, didn't know, I just, I, I look back and say, wow, that guy was good looking. He didn't have any girlfriends. He just had this tragic life and what he would do because it's all he had was he would drink and he would smoke pot and he would just sit there often and cry in the corner and you'd go over and say, hey, what's going on? He'd say, hey, Dave, he even knew my name. And he just, he told me this over and over. He's like, Dave, when you get older, please don't go to a war. And you know, I, I didn't care. I was a young, I was a teenager, you know, I was involved in sports and I had a girlfriend, girlfriends or whatever they're called. I just didn't take his advice, but I did, I, I look back and I think this is an amazing person. This is what a hero is, is somebody that's rejected, somebody that's not listened to. You know, like Hess said, we come home from, from these incredible experiences, sometimes very tragic, and people don't believe us. They think everything we say is a lie. They don't want to hear what we have to say. And, you know, the state doesn't want to hear it. The state doesn't want to, uh, you know, we've got to keep sending troops over. we gotta, we got to keep sending arms over. So let's, let's be patriotic. Where does patriotism end when it's not really patriotism anymore? It's just pure, outright propaganda. Until you go to the war and, you're in, and you see your friends killed and you see other people killed, women and children, and you realize it took me so long to realize what my Native, Native American brothers and sisters talked about. Um, the genocide, the killing of women and children. I, I thought it was all, you know, that the enemy had to die. They're, they're, they're going to take our freedom away. But what you ultimately find out is just a, a stupid war for money and for oil. And it's done nothing but instigate terrorism and waves of calamitous terror have continued since that time. We have caused a lot of our own problems. We've got so big, we can't we're so big now, we don't know what to do with ourselves. So we just keep growing and growing. Have we past the point that that we even are the United States. I like to call it the un-United States because you can already see there's dividing potentialities in the country again. Hello, this is In Between Stations Radio. How can I help you? Hey, you're talking too much. Murky. Hi. I, I'm talking too much? Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, are you doing okay? Pretty much. You are? Yeah. How's, uh, how's our reception coming in way out there in the desert? It's a good signal. You need to go to a song now and not be so long-winded. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. All right, we'll, we'll go to a song. So, see you in a few days. Okay. Bye. <laughs> Oh, Murky, I miss you. I hope you didn't forget my mustard plaster.
marijuana, New York, marijuana, macabre, marijuana, New York, marijuana, mushroom, marijuana, New York, marijuana, macabre, marijuana, New York, marijuana, mushroom, marijuana, you think of that song? <laughs> oh, mushrooms, marijuana. <laughs> Where do these things take us? Where do these experiences go? Is it possibilities of actually opening a doorway that's unseen? Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> All right, let's move into some more things i want to speak about first first of all before we go back to the door of huxley's perception uh, the doors of perception where he actually uh used mescaline uh an active alkaloid from the uh um, peyote plant and had this uh, amazing uh experience that and he continued to lose hallucinogenics until i think he passed away 
So, and they did, they did, did help change his life. He never said that they were a complete fix-it-all, that they're going to, they, they were just a part of waking you up. They were, they were sort of a little bit of a opening of that, of that door into the, into the other world, into what you really might be, and, and an opening into your heart, and an opening into to the beautiful. So for me, uh, as, as an individual, I guess I should, I mean, I, I've talked about this before, um, since I've been small, uh, and I used to, I, you know, I, I never used to talk about this. My mom was, was, was gifted this way, uh, visions and dreams, and she had lots of them, and it was, it was a, a troubling to her. I think a lot of people have these. When you go to, to uh, the, the, have the tribal experience and sit in a village and a house of friends and family, you realize a lot of people have visions and dreams that the indigenous elements has has been going on for thousands of years it's just it's it's laughable to think it's it there's not rationality there they don't separate um rational from non-rational material from non-material it's just a part of your daily life having visions and dreams it enhances your life it doesn't you know it's just funny how everybody talks about their visions and dreams as, as if it's just uh like i don't know like going out and growing your corn or going to work or, or saying hi to your friend most a lot of times it ends up hey i had a dream or i had a vision you know natives are famous for that why why is that so hard for us well and, and i'll tell you it goes back to the early spanish conquistadores and it goes back to the colonial people it goes back to the puritans and the pilgrims it goes back to restricting this thing it goes back to the pope you know, it goes back to restricting the spiritual experience. Only certain people can have it because it's power. And when somebody has it that's outside of those realms, like Joan of Arc, you kill them. You burn them at the stake. You, you cause fear because that's how revelation, vision, and dreams, they come and it changes things. It changes the... the it unlocks the iron door. And, it, and thus the doors of perception. Thus William Blake's... Um, that we need something to open up, to open us up and see what a marvelous creature we are, what a marvelous intelligence are, how we're connected to every living thing, that there's a creator, that there's this beautiful um, dynamic to our lives that we often don't see, that we can get beyond what Philip K. Dick termed the black iron prison, that it's just been going on and on, you know, and this is, we can't get out of it. You know, that's always the thing about Philip K. Dick's books that I always thought is there's no way out. You're trapped. And you know, a lot of this stuff was based on visions and dreams. Uh, the exegesis, as it's called. He had 8,000 pages of that. Uh, and he, some of his stuff is very prophetic. He, he claimed to have lived in these alternate realities where Nazi and Germany did win the war. Where uh, you did something else other than what, what really happened. You know, you were supposed to be there at 822, and you arrived at uh, a little before that, and something dramatic happened, and the whole branch of reality goes in a different direction, and offshoots into the fractal and Mandelbrot universe. Um, so I, I, I had the, you know, for lack of thing, I would see things, and and they were just, uh, they were physical objects. I would see things moving. I would see. I used to think I was. I had the hardest time. Uh, my mom would help me with this because she was a, a bit like this of you know let me know well that's a dream and this is reality because I just didn't know how to separate the two because I was constantly involved in these powerful experiences and as an artist I was able to translate that a little bit um, 
But it made for a really lonely world because it was hard to talk to people about those sort of things. Now, in the culture I'm from, visionaries and dreams and prophecies are, at least in the, in the older foundations of Mormonism, are a really powerful part of how it became a religion. The original founders were people involved in visions and dreams and uh, these really miraculous experiences. I don't know if that still goes on because I, 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 I haven't been with that culture and that religion for a number of years for my own health sake. Uh, it really works well for some people and those in my family, but not for me. So, in light of that, having visions and dreams, and I've talked about my dreams extensively in in-between stations and a little bit about visions, um, that's, one of the, that's one of the doorways that can open up things for you. To, to this larger, larger, deeper, more profound reality out there. You know, the quantum world, the, what's beyond uh, the laws and what's beyond our culture and what's beyond the forbiddens, uh, what's, what's really out there. Um, so uh, dreams and visions is obviously one way. Um, I, I've listened to a couple of people and have uh, at least one friend that was in a serious car accident, and that changed his life. You know, it just... It smashed in the whole left, right side of his skull. He had serious brain damage. And in the middle of all that, he had this profound vision that went into the other world. And he's seen things. He's seen this deeper, broader reality. This, this infinite that, that William Blake talks about, that visionaries like Jacob Bohm talk about, that uh, uh, lots of different mystics talk about. Um, Middle Eastern ones, Egyptian, you get in the Egyptian Book of the Dead, you get into reading Egyptian poetry, ancient Egyptian, uh, Samaria, you read some of that stuff, uh, and, and, and indigenous tribes, you know, this stuff's been going on for <laughs> since time immemorial. And, and, and the medicine person, the shaman, uh, the, the curandero, um, the brujos, these are people that... Um, that are gifted, uh, the patriarch, like in the Mormon religion, these are people who are gifted to look into the future, that can, that can diagnose an illness, that can see things and help you out. It's beyond the sort of uh, medical doctor into the realms of the quantum, the atomic and the particle of, of, of energy systems that, that live inside of us, that, are, that we give names like the sun and like stars and like nuclear fission and like... Uh, religion and uh, like love and, and like uh ooh wow things you know it, it, it you can you can boil it down to just baseline energy what, but you know it's more than that having sex with someone you love and having the experience of being in love with somebody it's not sex anymore it's 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 a sacrament it's an expression that goes way beyond just saying i love you and that's you know it's that's part of the you can't really it's an experience you have so there's so many different ways to open these doors up. So visions and dreams, uh, accidents, uh, going to a war like I went to can just shatter your life and open these uh, these possibilities up. You know when uh, um, when when Kurt Vonnegut got home from this horrible experience of being in Dresden, where he had to move the the bodies of, of dead women and children. He was a prisoner of war, and he was made to to move the. Um, he he had to move. He just seen endless amounts of dead bodies, and mostly women and children. Dresden was a largely peaceful city, and it it just absolutely shattered his life. 
as an American citizen. Uh, it was just one of the most sad and tragic events that, that he ever had. And so when he came home, how do you relate that? And so he chose this amazing novel, um, Slaughterhouse-Five. <clears throat> he used humor. And a lot of past authors, Don Quixote, uh, I'm trying to think of uh, the book Candide, uh, use humor as a means uh, to, to come to terms with real horrible tragedies. And um, so he, um, Vonnegut used humor and he used time travel and he used alternate realities and dimensions. So and, and you, you could say it was kind of a way to, to get out of this, these horrible atrocities he experienced uh, to form another world. But that's part of the whole interesting thing behind the novel Slaughterhouse-Five. Uh, probably need to read the novel versus the movie. The movie is really good, too. I love the guy that plays Billy Pilgrim. Kind of reminds me of me. <laughs> I was a very uh, unorthodox and re rebellious soldier. I mean, I did things... Uh, Good things. I, I followed rules, but sometimes I didn't, and uh, there's reasons for that. War is insane and crazy. It's a people do nutty things, uh, uh, and they become very dark personalities or very enlightened ones. War, war can uh, push you to your limits, and you go down into these suppressed things that you've had all your life inside of you, and they kind of come out during the war. You know, when the bombs getting dropped out there, when people are dying. When, when you got to go to the front lines and you get the paper saying, hey, you're going to have to go to the front lines now. And then you, you get that experience. Well, I mean, what that, you know, it's, it's just, it, it can really open you up, but and, and not always in the best way. So that's, that's another experience. It's some, something that opens your mind up to get you to, to move outside of the bounds of, of your culture, of your reality, of the laws and rules that you may have to put there yourself. Maybe your parents didn't even give them to you. You have these fears built up inside of you, and so you know, I think it's necessary to have lock boxes to some degree. To put, you know, you can't always be thinking of these horrible tragedies. I know when I worked in the emergency room, uh, you know, and any good paramedic or anybody that works on the front lines of a, of a trauma unit, you just see death after death, and a lot of them are just tragedy in the most gruesome, awful way, like a war. You know, things you don't want to remember that just suddenly. Um, you hear a song or a word, something, or you watch a TV show, or maybe you even see a flower and it just breaks open this, this, this actual event, this memory you have of this horrible tragedy. And there's a lot of those in the emergency room. Um, and uh, as a medic and a person that worked in a hospital, you have those, and you have to, you can't always have those out there, but you have to learn to deal with them. And, and, and I think when you suppress things like that and you, and you don't, and you're always locked away, it can be a big problem. But there's a time and a place for everything. So that gets us back to the hallucinogenic. And I like to move out of the corridors of pot and out of the corridors of alcohol and uh, tobacco. Um, these, are, these are things that started out really well. Tobacco is a sacred plant that indigenous people. It comes with lots of rules on how you use it and when you use it and not all the time. Alcohol itself, according to one of my uh, Gaelic friends in Ireland, was a sacred drink. It was a medicine like ayahuasca that was demented and used later on to get money. So, and, and, and it wasn't addictive. You used it in, in very, so it was a type of medicine. Whiskey is a Gaelic word. 
Um, we we dement these things. We change them like like coke and cocaine. We change them into monsters. And when something you know is that powerful, it really affects your serotonin and dopamine levels. It becomes highly addicting if you're using it all the time. So I'm gonna I'm gonna you know, and that's what. Uh, um, Huxley talks about is like, you know, putting aside alcohol and tobacco, the addictions that go with that, and moving into something that can give you more of a profound experience. Uh, and that's what these do. And I have been heavily involved with uh, hallucinogenics from since I was probably 24 years old. Uh, and in those days, I had no idea what a traditional indigenous culture was that had experience with plants like uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms for thousands of years. There's a certain way you use that plant. There's a certain, there's certain ways that you pray and you fast, and, and it's, it's a very special event that is meant to break through the everyday mundane reality and open you up to something much deeper. And, and so after thousands of years of trial and error and learning what to do, you know how to use these plants. And we just seemed to, you know, that was, and when I was, in my 20s, I didn't, I didn't give a damn. I didn't know anything about that. You just took the stuff. And sometimes, you know, you take, you know, as usual, something with mushrooms or mescaline, for God's sakes, pay, you, you take way too much because it has a delayed response. Ayahuasca has that. Uh, 20, 30, sometimes 40 minutes. You're just waiting. And, and that's the problem is when you're in experience, you think, oh, i got to take more of this stuff. And i got to take more. And you end up taking like 20, 23 grams of mushrooms. That's a lot. And you have this what I like to call just this horribly dark experience, and you don't know what the hell is going on. You have no context to measure it. I had a horribly terrifying experience uh, with with uh, with a close friend, uh, and I and I without going into the details of it, I, I think we took God I th over twenty grams of mushrooms, and then and then I fasted. I didn't eat anything. And then, you know, it's the first time I'd taken these, you know, and I, and I walk in the bathroom and I'm like, is this working? And my, the lights are on and my pupils are huge and they won't dilate, they won't contract. And then starts this experience that just, I didn't know what to do with it. You just go down and this door opens up into this other world. And I'll, I'll tell you this, just, and I've, I've talked to other friends about this. I just sat looking at a clock. I had, to, I had to like focus on something because what was going on was so profound and so powerful and so overbearing. I thought, I'm just going to sit down and look at this clock. And so I sat down. I remember it was like 1 o'clock, maybe 2 o'clock. And as I stared at the clock trying to meditate, concentrate on it to get my composure, because this goes on six and seven hours, this experience I'm having, I watched the hands of the clock. It went it, this quick, too. It went from 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock, 8 o'clock, the sun's coming up. That's that quick. So I had sat there in this state of mind, staring at a clock for hours, and it seemed like minutes, seconds had had taken place. And that that's what happens with these... These are very profound, powerful experiences that should not be taken lightly. And that's why I have a problem when you just, when you do the uh, uh, IV with DMT, which I think is a very quick, fast, you know, gas pedal all the way to the floor experience. You're, you're taking the alkaloid, you're, you're isolating the most powerful element. Like I, I always like to point out, 
you, you just do a straight IV of caffeine into your vein without drinking the coffee. And the pleasures of cream and talking with your friends, you just IV, you know, 1,000 milligrams of caffeine into your body. That's what you do in the ER to get somebody revived that's had a heart attack. You use antropine and caffeine. And um, it's, I, I think we need to study things out. And that's something that Huxley did, is he took his time. He studied out. You know, uh, um, when he read Osmond's stuff, uh, I don't know why I keep... Uh, <laughs> Humphrey Osmond, when he read his work... Uh, on, on clinical psychology and on the possibilities of trying to understand what schizophrenia is and mental illness is that um, that uh, mescaline was a way to do that. So mescaline is, is the is the alkaloid, the powerful alkaloid that's taken directly out of the peyote, and then you take it straight uh, without all the unpleasantries of vomiting and of uh, the gravity before you launch into the visions. You know, sometimes peyote can take quite a while to work. I think that even the mescaline took a while to 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 uh, work for Huxley. Um, he even went to a drugstore while they're waiting for it to kick in. And, and, and I think lasted six hours, but it was this amazing experience he had. You can read it for yourself of the divine, uh, of beauty, of love, of, of seeing just a chair of very ordinary objects, and you get this sometimes in Zen, and heavy Zazen meditation, where something uh, like the sound of a bird opens up an other, an, another entire realm of reality. It's so beautiful and so profound, and you start crying. It, it, it echoes through your mind. It's the most melodious, amazing thing to hear the birds singing the trees as as the as the dawn comes, uh, and and. And your mind is, is open to all the other sounds and, and the, the traffic flowing by, you know, in that early morning hour. The sound of the engines in the car, you know. And um, you, you even feel like you can hear the stars and you can hear the trees singing. And there's no hallucinogenics here. This is a Zazen experience. You experience what's called emptiness. And this is something else I want to talk about. And these radical uh, hallucinogenic experiences... Uh, with especially with plants and in ceremonies, the you, the I, the ego is totally disappears. And often when I'm in solos in nature, that's exactly the experience I get. Is at some point as you're walking, 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 one, two, three, four days, and you're and, you, and you're in the desert, and you're seeing the animals, and you're seeing the plants, and you're seeing the clouds, and you're seeing hearing the thunderstorms, and and you're walking, and you're walking, the you disappears. And it's actually beautiful. This is, this is a problem. It, it, we are so invested in personality, so invested in culture, so invested in laws, that we, we went so extreme that we, we shut off the larger and bigger universe. And when you're out there doing a solo, which is, you know, one of my, uh, I've been doing it for years, is it can be profound. Like in, in Blood Red Moons of August, when I talk about it in the Great Salt Lake Desert, it can open you up. And the you disappears, and then this this incredibly beautiful thing happens, where you realize you're connected to everything, and 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 you realize the power of love. Now you can have really dark experiences, and I've had plenty of those, and that's why you have the ceremony, and that's why there's certain things you need to do when you're in that element. There's <laughs> crazy, insane stuff in there, beings of unimaginable proportions and power. 
that don't even seem to even care about you other than to, to, uh, to feed off of you. Yeah, vampire-like beings. Have you ever seen like a, you know, a spider in a web and you put your pencil down there? You know, I've talked about this. And, and uh, you wonder how much the spider comprehends about you, and about your car and about your job, and, or, or how much you comprehend about the spider. But especially the spider's not going to understand the dynamics of what you are. Or maybe they do. I don't know. I'm not a spider. Uh, and or you see these little solo ants that have to go out and figure out what's out there to get more food and resources for, for his family, for the big, huge ant family. They have these explorers that go out by themselves, and a lot of them die. But they bring back information that's vital to the colony. It's vital to the family. And it's, it's really risky what they have to do. And, there, and you wonder how much of that, you know, and I, I, I'll be walking in the desert, running for days, and I, ants are very sacred to me. Uh, my son, Sam, is close friends with a, an ant scientist. And to get around those two is amazing. And it's just this whole beautiful understanding of what an ant is. Well, ants are sacred because I spend a lot of time at Hopi and Zuni, and so they're, they're my friends. And I, I have to, uh, and so I'll stop my entire hike, and I'll say, hey, buddy, and then he'll look. I've even had, I know they're looking at me because I look at them and they get a little scared. I get a little scared if the ant's big enough. And, and then the ant will look at me and say, hey, you're like me. You're, you're exploring. You're on the fringes of, of your civilization. The, the big city's back there and my, my family's back there in, 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 in the, the, uh, the big pile with all the tunnels and the, and the air conditioning and all the food. And I'm way out here in the middle of nowhere. Say, we're, we're, you know, this little tiny being, sometimes tiny brains can have a lot of power. That's how nuclear fission starts out. These insignificant things called protons and neutrons are split. So little things have a lot of power, especially in the quantum world, especially in the insect world. So having empathy with this ant and realizing, hey, I'm not going to do any, you know, I could step on that ant and wipe, wipe him out. Ruin his entire day. No one would even give a damn except me because I, I feel empathy with him because I know, <clears throat> I know what it's like to be on the edges of my society, to be on the edges of rules, to be on the edges of, of a wilderness, to be, to be in, a, in a place that opens you up to this larger, wider dynamic of, of this incredible universe, uh, the being that Plato talks about, uh, the the emptiness that Zen talks about because it's so there's so much out there there's no words for it you have to experience this and that's it's 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 an amazing amazing saturation of 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 and I think what happens is this humility kicks in you realize I'm so insignificant and this has happened to me several times while while doing these uh, ayahuasca yopo mixes where I I mixed plants and I and I spend a lot of time studying these plants and talking to tribal people so it's not naively done and these can be profound uh, profound events uh, and for God's sakes why did the prophets go out in the desert why did Muhammad go to a cave why did Moses go up on every ever seen Sinai you ever looked at pictures of it I you know this is in the middle of no <laughs> I mean there's right now there's a, a there's a church there, you know, it's, a, it's real famous because it has some, some of the most ancient written records in, in the world in there. But Sinai is kind of like uh, in the middle of nowhere. Um, why do you go in the desert? Why do you leave the big cities? Why do you leave Mesopotamia? Why do you leave 
Cairo? Why do you leave um, Memphis? Why do you leave Athens? Why did Socrates go outside of Athens to talk about one of what might be the most amazing discourse of all, um, the, uh, the, the Phaedrus, the Phaedra? Why do you leave that? Because I, I, think, I think you're more than just your time. You're more than just your rules. You're more than just, you know, I, born, what your parents taught you. There's so, you, and, and natives have this, where you go on the vision quest. That's what some, that's what white people like to call it. You go on a, a fasting and praying, and Hopis are famous for this. They have a run that sometimes they do. They used to do 90-mile run into the most forbidden, frightening place, you, canyon. You can it hooks into the Grand Canyon. They used to run this fasting and praying the whole time. My friend that, that did these runs, three and 400 miles, didn't eat or drink. Yeah. So in addition to running tremendous mile, mileage at, at phenomenal speed, he wasn't eating. He was fasting, and he was praying the whole time. So it wasn't a competition. It was this communion with, with the Creator, with the planet. The run is a prayer. The run is a miracle if you do it right. It's beyond competition. It's, it's, it's a means of opening yourself up to all living life forms. You run as a prayer for all living things, as a prayer for water. So we need water to make things grow. There's all these multitude of experiences, but I say to you, if you just throw away indigenous culture that's been doing these things thousands of years, and you just go at it naively, I'm sorry, you just go at it naively and uh, into the hard, into the school of hard knocks, you're in, you're, you might, it might be okay for you, but you're probably going to be in big trouble. And you're not going to get the depth experience, the, the mind-opening experience that you probably need and i and i think these things are are known uh, the creator knows what you need and you need a certain situation to open you up to to this broader and deeper reality that that william blake talks about that that and and i this is kind of what uh, um huxley goes over in the doors through the doors of perception a lot of people did not like that book they felt like it was threatening like it was a very subjective experience as if the religious experience is not subjective but these, this is a power thing you know when you start when you start challenging uh, the leaders, you know, uh, that's what Jacob Bohm did, that the great visionary, German visionary in the 1620s, Jacob Bohm, had these fantastic visions that saw God, that saw the celestial world, that saw that we, that we had physical bodies, that we ate food, that saw, you know, Jacob Bohm, for God's sake, uh, is, his stuff is pages, hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of pages of prophecy, of directly talking with God, of seeing God, of, of what God is, of who Satan is. It's just this amazing uh, trip to read his stuff. And, and he was a very honest person. And he was just not accepted in his town in Germany. Uh, back then, he just he was considered a radical, psycho, mentally ill, and he challenged the the powerful government there. He challenged the religious leaders, and even though these guys are um, Protestant, you know, and in, in, in contrast to Catholics, Martin Luther, you know, you can have your own personal experience with God. You can have your own experience, personal experience with the scriptures. It isn't just what the Pope says, at least back then. Uh, 
even in that kind of environment, he was seen as this incredible radical that had to be stopped. And he had this, uh, until the day he died, he had this huge confrontation. I mean, he was largely peaceful, but this other religious leader in the community just wanted him to shut up. And, and he couldn't really publish a lot of his writings. A lot of his visions and dreams were not published until after, uh, after he died. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. And that's, that's what Carl Jung is saying. You know, people religiously file, follow Jung like some kind of religion. I don't know if he would have liked that. Uh, I mean, he had his archetypes. He had the visions and dreams, the power of these manifestations of the archetypes, these bits and pieces of personality, both genetic and both contemporary inside of you. Uh, and his thing was is finding balance, finding the... the the psychotic and sick parts of yourself, and having having dialogue with them. This is what the shaman does. This is what the what the medicine, the culandero. This is what the medicine person does. This has dialogues with these. Uh, the the Dene have names for these. Um, the Navajo. Uh, when you go to a medicine man, and forgive me if I say this wrong, the Chindi. Uh, that these elements, these pieces of, of sickness that live in you. If you want to call them genies or satanic. But they're, they're warped parts of you. And what Jung said is, and this is what you learned, in, I learned in Zazen, Zen, is you sit down with these and you see what the energy is manifesting, why it's there. Find out the origins of these things. Find out if they're legitimately just, they have a need, like a, like a hug or, or to listen to me, to listen to your anger, to listen to your sadness, to find out why these things happen in your family, and then to bring them together and find this, the transcendent function, which is an amazing part of Jungian psychology, depth psychology, where you come into balance and suddenly you're this very healthy individual after a tremendous amount of work. You're, you're back into balance with yourself and with your community, with the universe. What Jung said is these great wars like the Nazis and World War I and World War II were causes of suppression, were causes of not paying attention to what's underneath the surface of these empires and of these governments and of these state powers. And, and as a result, you have these huge wars, catastrophic wars. My God, World War I, a million people would die in one battle. I had a great-grandfather in that. It totally ruined his life. And he brought back this dark wound to his family. And it's taken all these years to... To recover from that, to 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 find out what was what did he leave behind? What happened to him? And one of his great grandsons went through the same thing he did, and and it's 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 about balance. It's about heart. It's about opening yourself up to more than what you think is there. And I, and I think hallucinogenics can help you, and that's what Huxley says is a common thing like a rock or a chair or can become profound. In fact, I think uh, 
the chairs in the garden uh, that uh, Huxley wandered out, his personal, his beautiful garden, he had these fire poker flowers, uh, became the entire universes, became uh, came doorways. In, in fact, the, the beauty of the chairs in his garden was, was so overpowering that he could hardly bear it. He, he actually experienced madness. But, you know, you can, the beauty can be so powerful, uh, a feeling can be so powerful of pleasure or fear or terror that it can just overwhelm your entire being. Uh, and that's that's part of these experiences. The, the peyote ritual in the, in the Native American church is a very complex, uh, has a lot of rules. You fast and you pray. It's for the healing of a person. You have a roadman that takes you through. You have a song that moves you through these corridors. It's the same with the ayahuasca ceremonies, with the Mexican mushroom ceremonies that are thousands of years old. And that's that's kind of naively what we don't often see when we get involved in these things. When you have these... Uh, um, pharmaceuticals, you know, it just has, take one or two tablets, you might experience a headache or you might have profound diarrhea. You know, those really fast advertisements they have now. You take this pharmaceutical and, and, uh, and it tells you all the things that it, it could do to you and how harmful it is really fast. While in, in, in the visuals of everybody smiling and being on a vacation of love and kisses and the flowers. Meanwhile, this really fast voice is giving you all the legal warnings that the, that the uh, pharmaceutical is going to uh, cause. So pharmaceuticals are, are contemporary replacements of these beautiful medicine ceremonies, of these beautiful ceremonies that involve more than just isolating the alkaloid in a plant like cocaine or like mescaline. All these, these many, many hundreds, if not thousands of years of things learned about being in the other world, of fasting and praying, of how do you deal with alternate realities. And it, it's this whole educational process that we often just throw in a waste paper basket and say, hey, I'll take that. Give me some of that. Woo, this is, your, this is oh my God, I'm having a horrible trip right now. Oh, help me, please, please hold me because I took so much. Sometimes you don't need a lot. Sometimes just a little microdose of something can really help you out. Um, and and you got to find out for yourself. And maybe none of that's for you. Maybe hallucinogenics, and I say it, is not for you. Maybe there's other ways to do these things, praying and fasting. And I, so I always say you have to know. That in, in, my, in my learning from indigenous culture is the plant has to, and the spiritual entity has to approach you and say, hey, it's time for you. We have a place for you. And I'll bring the things to you, you need to help you through this situation. And uh, that's why it's important to study and, and think through these things. If you're just, you know, you don't have that long of a life. And if you reject thousands of years of cultural experience with that particular situation, then you're just hitting your head against the wall. You, you don't know. You, it's, and that's what's meant when you, by the ancestor, is ancestral knowledge that's not decades old, that's not hundreds of years old, but thousands of years of ancestral knowledge passed down about ceremonies about these, these sacred doorways that open up and you go into them. There's, there's things that you need to do. And this, uh, you know, uh, the surface thing, hey, well, this is great, let's just smoke some dope, dude, and watch this, this cool flying saucer movie. Wow, dude, this is freaking me out, wow. You know, taking it as something more than that, something more profound. And that's why I have problems sometimes with somebody like Terrence McKenna, 
and with Carlos, uh, you know, and Terrence McKenna is not the same place as uh, Carlos Casanata. Car Carlos Casanata largely made up his stuff, and you know, the guy only drank coffee. He never even had a hallucinogenic experience. When you read his diaries and you look into him, it's like he took these things from these libraries, these these eyewitness accounts like Huxley, and he applied them to his to these incredible narratives, these amazing stories. I wish he, it should have just all been fictional, like like uh, Lord of the Rings. Instead, he came up with this Don Juan guy. He really knew him, which we now know is not true. And yucky people, yucky people especially, have a problem with Carlos Casanata because he just wasn't native. He didn't he didn't hang out with yuckies, not traditional ones. So and most indigenous people don't even, they laugh at Carlos Casanata's stuff. Uh, Terrence McKenna is something different. He, he really does, he's extremely brilliant, educated, but he, he goes into the, he takes the 23 grams of mushrooms and more if you can. And he finally got the big dose when he died, I guess. But I have a problem. I mean, this is the way some people go, but when you throw that in somebody's face and you say, hey, take, take the big dose here, and it'll take you where you need to go. You know, each individual is different, and I have a problem with that. That's what I did initially, and it caused huge, huge, complex problems that went on for years until I understood uh, uh, properly. You know, and uh, Terrence McKenna's wife's an interesting person because she actually, one of the reasons I think she said that she left him was she got tired of him always pushing her in the extreme direction of hallucinogenic. She wanted to have a different experience involved in the culture involved in the ceremony and so she went to Mexico and in a feminine way she wanted she was tired of being overwhelmed by the masculine go out there and do it go on that journey to the far the far ends of the universe she just wanted to sit in her backyard in her garden like Huxley and have a beautiful experience but have it connected to indigenous knowledge and culture uh, I hope I hope we went somewhere I, I hope I hope, you know, I know my son, he's, my son does not do hallucinogenics. He's not involved, his, his, his Taha, his Hopi uncle has, has, has told him, don't do this. This vastly spiritual Hopi person, uh, most Hopis I know don't get involved with hallucinogenics. It's, they say in their previous world they had this experience, they brought it with them into this world. So tobacco and fasting and praying and being in the Kiva uh, are, are more a part of their experience. And that was passed down to my son, his, his Taha, his, his, his uncle. Uh, my son spent uh, mo all, most of his life at Hopi as a village that he spent time in. He has a whole, we have a whole family there of beautiful friends and uh, people that we love. And, uh, and his Taha is a spiritual leader. And so he advises Sam, he's a, kind of a godfather, that you know your hole in your head, the spiritual, your spiritual communicator, your antenna is already open. You don't need these things. And so, you know, Sam's very strict, doesn't drink, doesn't smoke, um, but he has amazing experiences in the Taoist way with this, with the plants, with the animals, with the forest. He's so open to these things. And the Taoists tell us, the Zen people tell us, you can have these experiences merely by sitting down and opening your mind to these things by the way you breathe, by the discipline of Zazen, by the discipline of listening to everything that's around you and being in the moment can expand your mind. That might be where, where the Creator's always been, is in the moment. We're so preoccupied with the future and with the past and with our, our, our itineraries of our zeitgeist, our culture and time, we're forgetting that this Creator is, is timeless. 
is in this broader sense of reality that that's what birth is. And if you want to take the name off God and Creator and just say it's energy, okay, like Spock, you know, <laughs> um, it, it, it's it's energy, okay, it's energy then. And and you can give me a mathematical equation like Schultes, Richard Devin Schultes, say. For all these spiritual events, I can give you a chemical composition and I can write an equation up on the board. But that doesn't substitute the actual experience with the deity, with, 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 the, with the hallucinogenic, with the dream, with the tree, with the beautiful insects, with the whole forest, with the lake, with, with the beautiful moment. If you can walk the doors right there in your, in, in, in your house in the place you're standing at the bus stop or on the, on the seat in your business. The door is open waiting for you if, if you're able to do it. And I think instead of having a nuclear holocaust that these power junkies, that these obsessed men that feel like they have all this control, instead of having that event, we as a people have the power to move away from that by sheer numbers by sheer volume, but it all goes back to you changing as an individual. And it's a discipline. It takes time. You can't run 100 miles. You can't run 50 miles unless you work out, unless you take time, unless you discipline yourself. Maybe you can if you're superhuman, but it, it's, it's a process, and it lasts your entire life. You're not just enlightened. I have always had a problem with I'm enlightened. It's like my, my, my Zen Roshi used to tell me, uh, enlightenment is just bullshit. It's shit. I've been enlightened, but it's something that you live. It's a, the rest of your life that you open your mind up to, to realizing as long as we're in this body, like Socrates says, as long as we haven't approached the, the ideal, the heaven, the place where the forms are, the being, then we got there's this work involved and it's very sacred and it's beautiful the body you have the moment you're in is a is an invaluable experience uh, and 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 use it for all you can but but open up to them open up to it okay so all right love you i hope you have a nice night the sun's just about all the way up now and so um this is david hartley with in between stations i hope murky and Belle will be with me on our next broadcast. I miss her. And uh, if you're going to sleep on the other side of the world, sweet dreams. I'll meet you there, um, hopefully. Uh, or if you're uh, waking up, then maybe I'll see you on the bus or at work, or especially in In Between Stations broadcast. This is David Hartley signing off the air, meaning that somebody wrote me an email, said, when you sign off the air, you keep going. <laughs> Yeah, we play a song or something, and then we just gradually fade out as you do in the short way. So, um, this is, we're, we're signing off the air after our little song, uh, and then you'll know when we will sign on. So, all right, see you, thank you, uh, good night, good morning.
dialogue within between stations radio. This is Merkey and Bell within Between Stations Radio.